0: Cape Up is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. When the Justice Department issued its report on the Ferguson Police Department in 2015, The nation was shocked to learn that the Missouri town and courts were financing their operations by levying fines and jailing the poor for not being able to pay. In her new book, Punishment Without Crime, How Our Massive Misdemeanor System Traps the Innocent and Makes America More Unequal, Alexandra Natapoff exposes this greatly mythologized yet little understood part of the criminal justice system that's ensnared 13 million people. As you will hear in this discussion recorded during an event with Politics and Prose Bookstore, the world of misdemeanors is sprawling. It criminalizes poverty, and pleading guilty is not the end of the story. Um, Thank you very much for asking me to uh, moderate this discussion Once I saw the name, I didn't really care what the subject was because Alexandra, I'm sorry, Sasha and I have known each other for a long time now. I even wrote a column based on a conversation that we had during Thanksgiving. I just rediscovered four years ago. Um, This is right around the time of Ferguson and misdemeanors people were talking about. And here I had this infinite font of wisdom uh, talking about this And she said, here, let me send you something. I've been working on this. It became a column, and now it is a book. The name of the book, Punishment Without Crime, How Our Massive Misdemeanor System Traps the Innocent and Makes America More Unequal. Congratulations, Sasha, on on this book. Uh, As I said to you just a moment ago, it is the first book I have finished in 2019.
1: I'm so honored.
0: (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So I'm going to be a little counterintuitive in this conversation because I think the solutions that you have in the back of the book are a good frame for discussing the issues that are presented. And the very first thing you have as a solution is fewer people. And at the beginning of the book, you talk about the fact that there are 13 million criminal filings on the U.S. misdemeanor docket as of 2015, the fact that you have that number is a feat in and of itself. Explain why. Uh, First of
1: all, Jonathan, thank you so much for doing this with me. i am so thrilled uh, to be in this conversation with you in particular. And we have been having this conversation uh, for so many years. It's a subject, even though the misdemeanor system is so enormous, it's a little bit shocking. how little attention we've paid to it, and so the overall great overarching aim of this book is to get people to pay attention to it mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you as you said, I end the book with some large recommendations that I think of as new ways of thinking about our criminal system from the perspective of misdemeanors, from this perspective of that of the bottom of this enormous criminal justice pyramid that we have created and misdemeanors make up that bottom and as you say it's it's enormous and so the first remedy if you will is to shrink it Uh, and and the most important aspect is to run fewer people through the misdemeanor system in the first place that's what I mean by less people we should be arresting fewer people. We should be, once they are arrested, we should be charging fewer people with misdemeanor crimes. And later, we can get into sort of the the, the details of the way the criminal system converts people who have been arrested into criminal defendants. Uh, and as you mentioned, the scale of the misdemeanor system, that the sheer number of people who are in the misdemeanor system, has really We haven't even tried to figure that out until very recently. And so for, um, as part of researching this book, I asked every state, uh, all 50 states and the District of Columbia, how many misdemeanor cases do you file? How many people do you run through the system? How big is this thing that we have created? And uh, I could have written a whole book just about the responses I got. They were so diverse, so broad. Some of them were kind of shocking, uh, shockingly spare. Some states said, well, we don't really have that data or our computer system can't assemble the information that you want. Uh, But that was how I came to that 13 million number. I asked every state. I looked at data that was currently on the public record. It's partial, but there is some. I, I pulled every report, every media investigation, every public defender investigation, every, every ACLU report I could find to try to get a sense just how many people we are pushing through this system.
0: And, and for me as a reporter, the key thing here is there is no central database there's no there are no guidelines there's nothing as you're just explaining calling all 50 states looking at reports um, all over the place just to come to this number Um, so you want you think there should be fewer people and three ways that you think there should be fewer people or the three ways you get people swept up in um, the misdemeanor system um, it's the charges it's the number of arrests, and it's – and this is what I didn't understand because I, d- I don't have a legal brain, but declination. So um, people are swept up in the misdemeanor system. I think Bradley talked about j- there's jaywalking, seatbelts. What are some of the other ways that any one of us could be swept up in the misdemeanor system? Actually, well, I was about to ask, how many of you have gotten – some kind of misdemeanor or summons? Because one of the things you talk about in the book is we, we just sort of as a society don't think of misdemeanors as being all that serious.
1: Um, as a former public defender, I'm going to advise you not to answer that question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Notice I, I thought better <laughs> of it. <laughs> uh, they're taping. So.
1: <laughs> uh, there are some very basic ways that we could reduce the number of people who come into this process. The first is legislatures can decriminalize, and they can legalize. They can shrink the number, the pool of crimes uh, that turn low-level, common, often harmless conduct into crimes in the first place. Of course, we're in the midst of a very important experiment in that regard with marijuana possession. Many states are deciding. To legalize, and if not fully legalize, they're decriminalizing. Um, So that's one way. Legislatures have power to shrink that net. The next big spigot, if you will, are arrests. Uh, Police bring people into the misdemeanor system, and because the conduct is so minor, there's an enormous amount of discretion that police have over whether or not to make an arrest in the first place, and who should be in that system um, and who will not be burdened with a misdemeanor arrest we we were just joking around earlier that you know we just jaywalked this past week um, and, the, and then we think about how is it that some people end up in the misdemeanor system for jaywalking and some people don't and the answer is police discretion uh, we've we uh, police have many tools at their disposal Um, They can issue citations instead of arrests. They can, um, if if there's a situation that needs to be intervened in, there's a lot of research now on hotspot policing and targeted policing that involves more intervention, problem-solving interventions rather than this kind of broad net um, of, of arrest sweeping people in. The next step, once police have arrested you, is what happens to that arrest? And that's where this term declination becomes so important. A pro- typically, a prosecutor, and, and this is sort of the heart of what the prosecutorial job is, prosecutors get to decide, should that arrest become a criminal case? Well, you have merely been arrested, and I say merely advisedly because even being arrested can be burdensome and frightening and, of course, threatening. Um, uh, but being charged with a crime is an entirely different uh, uh a ball of wax. It's a, it's it's a very serious event in a person's life. And prosecutors decide that. And the way prosecutors decide it is they look at those arrests and they either decline the arrest, they say, it's enough. It was enough to arrest that person. It is not worth giving that person a criminal charge, potentially a criminal record, or they let that arrest go forward and become a full-fledged criminal case, at which point now you may be entitled to a public defender, now you're facing criminal charges, now the legal system is kicked in. And the bottom line is that declination rates in the misdemeanor system tend to be very low. In other words, prosecutors are letting those arrests become cases at very high rates. And one of the recommendations in the book... Uh, and also a recommendation that I made in an in op-ed that I wrote for the New York Times the other day, we want those declination rates to be higher. We want prosecutors to take more charge of that pipeline.
0: And that leads to um, another sort of overall recommendation or solution, and that's less jail. Um, I want to have you incorporate um, your thoughts on less jail with less punishment. What's the difference between the two?
1: The world of misdemeanor punishment uh, is is sprawling. One way to we could think about the, the punishment that anybody incurs from a misdemeanor as starting really at the moment of arrest, that first moment when you're taken into custody, when you confront the state. Uh, for some people who are in in highly policed neighborhoods, for example, where everyone expects to be arrested, we might say something like that the punishment begins even earlier in anticipation of being pulled over, for example, or of of being stopped. Um, Technically, legally, punishment uh, is the the burden imposed by the court upon a person who has been duly convicted of a crime. The typical punishments for misdemeanors are uh, uh, fines, probation, jail, and as part of probation and community supervision, there are all kinds of other um, other forms of what we call community supervision. It could involve drug testing. It could involve electronic monitoring. It could involve all kinds of conditions. When I say at the end of the book that we need less punishment, what I mean is that we need to contract the enti- that entire world, that entire set of burdens, formal and informal, legal punishment and all the ways we informally punish uh, that that kick in when a person is accused of and goes through the process of a misdemeanor offense. Often that whole net of punishment, that experience, the informal experience of going to jail, losing your job, um, incurring fines and fees and debt, can be greater than the formal punishment that any judge ever imposes. Uh, the, the fine can be $500, but you may ruin your credit. You may have spent uh, three to five days in jail just waiting for your case to be resolved. You may have lost your the custody of your children because of that jail time. So there's, it's really an enormous net, both formal and informal, and the idea is that we... We should be more discerning. We should be more proportionate. We should be more just in the way that we punish.
0: Um, And that leads to the the examples you were just giving to um, the one that I found most fascinating, and that was less taxation. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that um, you get stopped for a traffic violation or something, there's a ticket. And then that's when the spiral happens. Uh, I'm bouncing between either the story of Alyssa Uh, or the story of Cindy Rodriguez. They're Mm -hmm. both interesting. I'm gonna read the one about Alyssa and then have you talk about Cindy Rodriguez because that gets into a whole other thing about maybe debtors' prisons and things. So Alyssa was a bus driver. When she moved to a new home, she missed the 10-day deadline to change her address with the California DMV. That triggered a $25 ticket that she didn't know about, which got her license suspended. Lacking a license, she was fired, and with, without income, she couldn't set up a payment plan to pay off the ticket and fees. Now she and her, she and her children are in public assistance, and her original $25 ticket has ballooned into a $2,900 fine. Um, this gets into the whole area of how um, the misdemeanor system basically preys on low-income people. And then basically strips them of any kind of not just income but the wherewithal to make an income and the, the spiral gets deeper talk about C- uh, Cindy Rodriguez and her particular story I can pull it I can you have a lot of stories in here so if you <laughs> can't remember I'll pull it up I,
1: I, I remember miss Rodriguez uh, and, and I'm glad you asked this question so, so the chapter this chapter in the book is called money because you can't really understand the American misdemeanor system without thinking very deeply about the role that money plays. And I, and I want to pull out two strands of what you just said. One is that the misdemeanor system criminalizes poverty. In other words, it punishes people because they can't pay fines and fees. It punishes people because they can't pay to register their car. It punishes people, It often incarcerates them. Your reference to the new debtor's prison... Often we incarcerate people not because of the underlying offense, but just because they couldn't come up with the money that was supposed to be the, the low level punishment. So we're punishing people because of their poverty. And at the same time, and this is why I, I frame it as a question of less taxation, in many ways, those fines and fees, that wealth stripping of the poor is funding the system itself. It's funding courts. It's funding probation offices. It's funding public defender offices. It's funding prosecution offices. So the story of Cindy Rodriguez uh, uh, occurred in Tennessee. And the reason we know about it is that a, a, a lawsuit was filed against the county in which Ms. Rodriguez lived and the private probation company that the county had a contract with. And what happened to Ms. Rodriguez is that uh, she, I think she was, she was, you know, in her fifties, uh, disabled, living on um, disability benefits, very low income, no criminal record, and she was charged with shoplifting. And her punishment for the shoplifting was a five hundred dollar fine. That was it. But she could not pay that five hundred dollar fine, and so she was put on what is called a pay only probation. So, so this is what happens to poor people. If they can't pay the fine up front, they're put on supervision only because they cannot pay the fine, and so she was put on pay only probation with, um, I think it was called PCC, which I mm-hmm. I don't recall what it uh, stands for, but it was the-
0: Providence Community Corrections Inc.
1: Um, Providence Community Corrections Inc. was was the name of the private company that supervised Ms. Rodriguez and. Thousands of other people in Tennessee and around the country and what PCC did As do so many other private probation companies is once she went on probation They started charging her fees, so there's a monthly supervision fee. There's a fee every time they drug tested her She didn't have it. It wasn't a drug offense, but they still required her to be drug tested, um, for which they charged her a fee. When she failed to pay her fines and fees, they had a warrant issued for her, for which they charged her a fee. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you can see where this story is going. By the end of the year, Ms. Rodriguez had given them every penny she had. She signed over her disability check to them. Uh, She fell and broke her tooth and did not have the tooth fixed and said she gave the money to PCC. Uh, She lost her car. Uh, she was literally impoverished she was pushed further into poverty and had paid off um 400 and some odd dollars of that original fine and pcc said to her no you haven't you've only paid off the fine the fees that you owe us you haven't made a dent in your original court debt and they went back to court and said put her on another year of probation with us because she hasn't paid off her fine." And the reason I include this story is because one, it's so appalling and egregious; um, two, it triggered this lawsuit in which PCC had to se- finally settled with the thousands of people that it supervised and had to pay them fourteen million dollars uh, in settlement. Uh, and it is part of a wave challenging what has been this underground sort of secretive taxation, wealth-stripping function of the poor through these private probation companies.
0: And and this is a story, and this gets to why we were having that conversation in in the kitchen at Thanksgiving four years ago, because this is around the time of Ferguson, and the the, um, Justice Department report had come out, I think, um, was it then, or we were talking about it, but... 2015,
1: it came out, so it must okay, have been so right, we were th- then. right
0: before. So I bring that up because it was the Justice Department's report on the Ferguson Police Department, where the nation sort of had its eyes open, and to use your word, the nation was appalled to find out that the city of Fer- the township of Ferguson was funding itself on the backs of its poor residents through fees and tickets and warrants. And, and everything. Can you talk about the, get into a little bit of the history of these misdemeanors, uh, these misdemeanor charges, these debtor prisons, and how the long history of basically controlling people of color?
1: So I think if it weren't for Ferguson, we would be having a different public conversation about uh, the role of the misdemeanor system. It really did put so many people on notice that uh, the, of the reach of the misdemeanor system, how re- what a kind of regressive taxation system it is, uh, and, and how deeply it reaches into the lives and families of community of, the, of poor and especially poor people of color. And there's a, there's a chapter in the book called History and for the historians and the audience, I want to issue a caveat. It's not a it's not a full history of the misdemeanor system. The misdemeanor system is ancient. Uh, you know, we borrowed it as we did so many other things from the British. Uh, misdemeanors have been used literally for centuries to raise money and, um, and and control disadvantaged populations. But but I zero in on a couple of moments in American history history that I think are so representative and so illustrative. So one thing that we, we don't think about when we think about the misdemeanor system or places like Ferguson and, and, and these courts uh, is that after the Civil War uh, and after emancipation, the southern criminal system converted its misdemeanor apparatus into a mechanism for re-enslaving African-Americans quite intentionally. There were arrangements between sheriffs, local magistrate judges, and local industries. And the sheriffs would go and arrest African-Americans for vagrancy, spitting, um, loitering, trespassing, ironically, many of the same the names of the same offenses that we see today in broken windows policing, round them up, Uh, they would be convicted in local municipal courts, they would be fined in ways that they couldn't pay, and so the court would sell them, in effect, uh, to industry who would act, who would put up the money for the sentences, um, and thousands of people died. Uh, They were put to work in coal mines and factories, back on plantations, and uh, it was really... Disgusting and shameful chapter of American history, but also of our criminal system that I think we haven't really we haven't really kept in the conversation. Uh, vagrancy laws were at the heart of many of of um, those practices. Vagrancy was basically the crime of being poor, being unable to prove that you had a job. It was a way of rounding people up of of uh, of controlling disfavored uh, disfavored groups. And vagrancy laws were declared unconstitutional in, in the 1970s. But we are now in the midst of grappling with yet another historical moment. How should we permit police to engage in order, maintenance, policing, We sometimes call it quality of life, or broken windows? So um, trespassing, loitering, disorderly conduct, the heavy enforcement of these low-level offenses. And there's a, there's a roiling debate about whether that really fights crime is it really just a way of of um, uh, uh, further disadvantaging and burdening the the low-income and communities of color that, that these, this policing takes place, and so the so the historical conversation is really an important part, I think, of the of the whole story.
0: And the historical conversation uh, is very reminiscent of the conversation that we are having now in the in the book. Um, for those of you who might have it, it's page 152. Um, you uh, write about Baltimore. Um, you're a public defender in Baltimore, and on page 152, you write. and there are a lot of statistics. but between 80 and 90 percent of order maintenance charges are brought against black defendants, although they make up only 63 percent of Baltimore's population. Indeed, the assumption that trespassing is a black crime is so deeply ingrained in Baltimore police Department. That it is written into the form that officers use when they make a trespassing arrest. The form contains blank spaces for the arrestees name and the address of the of the arrest. But there are no spaces for race or gender. Instead, the form has already been filled in to read and she has in all caps black male. That's (laughs) that's now. Having been a public defender in Baltimore, uh, were you were you shocked by this or by any of the things that you learned as a result of doing all the research for your book?
1: I, I just want to point out that we wouldn't even know that, that incendiary fact, if the Department of Justice back in 2015 had not engaged in an investigation of the Baltimore City Police Department. That was a federal investigation that delved into.
0: Uh, the was that pers- after Freddie Gray, as a result of the Freddie Gray death in Baltimore? That uh, I believe it was Justice beho- it was before. Before, okay.
1: the Baltimore City Police Department has been in a long battle with the NAACP and with many um, uh, many entities over this kind of policing that has persisted for decades and decades. Uh, So Baltimore, um, it's an incendiary example, in part because we have more information about it, because it's been sued so many times, and because it's been investigated so many times. But we see this disproportion, this kind of racially biased policing replicated all over the country. And I tried to collect as many statistics as I could in the book to give people a sense of just how often this happens. That in city after city, we see African-Americans uh, uh, often in many cities, also Latinos um, arrested at uh, many times greater than their proportion in the population for these low-level order offenses. And when we say order offenses, we mean trespassing, loitering, jaywalking is a particular uh, a particular culprit. Um, and so this is how that the misdemeanor net. It, it, it really is, in many ways, the first step of how we racialize crime in this country because through these low-level offenses, we are bringing people of color into the criminal system uh, at greater rates and more often in ways that are slipping under the radar. Oh, it's no big deal. It's a misdemeanor. Just take the plea. Oh, we're not going to devote resources to it. You're not going to get a public defender. And, I, and for those reasons, it slipped under the radar – but it's so important in understanding why it is our entire criminal system is so racially skewed. It's really beginning in many ways with these chump change arrests and these.
0: Cape Up is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts
1: arrests in these Trump change cases.
0: Well, then let's talk about then the next recommendation, which is more justice. Um, Later on in the book, you you called the criminal system a pyramid with the felony um, criminal system being the top, the tippy top. It's very um, ordered and deliberate, well, relative to the misdemeanor system, very ordered and deliberate. And then you write at the bottom of the pyramid, by contrast, the fact that a person is guilty does not necessarily mean any such thing. They may have engaged in entirely blameless, harmless conduct. They may well be innocent and have pled guilty because the process costs were too high. So, talk about that in the in the um, in the realm of more justice. How do you bring more justice to a system where? Th- it seems like just from reading your book, the con- if we get caught up in the misdemeanor system, we have no constitutional rights, at least as the way it's practiced. So on the upside... Okay.
1: I think there are many obvious things that we can do to make our misdemeanor system more just because we do it all the time. We actually know how to do justice in this country. If you're wealthy if you uh, are represented by um, one of the many excellent public defender offices around this country, if you appear in many federal courts around this country, you will be treated with justice. You may not win, but, but the law will be applied. The evidence in your case will matter. Your rights will be vindicated. Um, I, was, I, I was very fortunate to be able to clerk in federal district court and then to have the experience of, of uh, clerking in federal appellate court and then to work in the federal public defender office in Baltimore, uh, which for all the challenges faced by the federal system was a very lawful place. The law mattered, justice mattered. People were trying to do their jobs as attorneys, as public defenders, as prosecutors. And the reason I call it a pyramid is because the top is small. It's too small that uh, as we move down the pyramid, as offenses get pettier, as we move into state court, as we move into the arena where defendants are poor, where public defender offices are overwhelmed, where prosecutor offices are overwhelmed, where the resources are not there to do justice as we know how to do it, um, then we end up with convictions that do not mean what they say. And it's such, I think it's such an important point because a conviction is such an important thing. We rely on it for so many things. It's a meaningful, it's not just, it's not just a ticket. It's not just a bureaucratic event. If, if someone has a conviction, it's meaningful to them, to their families, to their employers, to the community. And yet in the misdemeanor system, often those convictions are not produced according to law we disregard the law and misdemeanor courts all the time. Uh, the convictions may have pr- been produced without the assistance of counsel. Prosecutors may not have had time to screen those cases and think about them. People are under enormous pressure to plead guilty. And so when I the, the, the line that you read, we, we I, should live in a criminal system where if someone has a conviction, we should be able to conclude, from that conviction that they did the thing that they were convicted for. And it's not true in the misdemeanor system. All too often, if someone has a conviction, all we conclude is that they were likely to be arrested for all kinds of reasons that may have had nothing to do with the evidence, that they were likely to have been rushed through the process in a speedy way, pressured to plead guilty, and that they were likely to plead guilty not necessarily because they were guilty, but because they couldn't make bail or they didn't have adequate counsel or because they didn't understand the consequences and that and we have the tools to fix that we know how to run a lawful system we just haven't done it in the
0: low level courts you know you're talking about about bail can we just we're going to open this up to to Q and a and about okay five minutes so <laughs> so um, bail is a uh, particularly problematic in in all of this in in the 5 minutes or less so I could squeeze in one more question before we go to Q and A um, why is bail problematic and why is bail really part of a hub of this pro- of the problem with the misdemeanor system
1: so bail for those of you who don't know it's it's a f- a financial a monetary deposit that courts require some defendants, not all defendants, to pay uh, to ensure that they come back to court. It's essentially a a good faith deposit, so you, uh, depending on the seriousness of your case, you might put down a few hundred dollars or thousands of dollars, or in a very serious case, uh, a million dollars, if you're a a hedge fund manager, uh, to ensure, and if you don't show up to court, then you lose that deposit. But what bail has morphed into in the low-level court system is essentially a way of pressuring poor people to plead guilty because a $500 um, bail amount is out of reach for many people, for many families. There was an Atlantic article a few years ago that pointed out that most Americans, not not just um, indigent or poor Americans, but most Americans do not have $400 dollars easily lying around that's emergency money so if you don't have that money you stay in jail and every day you stay in jail with a plea offer on the table is a day that you could be getting out and so many people take those deals not because they're guilty or not because anyone has really decided whether the evidence supports the conviction or they should be convicted but as a way of buying their freedom and uh, those pressures are coming to light. We have seen now far more attention paid to bail with the death of Sandra Bland, of course, the, the death of um, Khalif Browder in New York, the suicide of Khalif Browder. Uh, so, so I think that that issue is coming to the fore. But in many ways, that's a misdemeanor problem. Those low level amounts of cash bail that people can't afford are generating outcomes that nobody wants.
0: And um, the thing that I found most uh, interesting and informative in your book is sort of your push to d- um, demythologize this notion that pleading guilty to a misdemeanor is no big, no big deal. Like, once you do that, it go it goes away. It never really goes away. And you tell this story, you have several examples. One example that um, sticks in my head is the young latina who was um i guess she was there was a traffic stop she had a little pot she didn't tell her mother because she was scared so she did all the court stuff by herself um she did all the little programs and she thought it was done until she went she was applying to college and she applied for financial aid and they found out about it And she was stripped of her financial aid. And you've talked at um, various moments during our discussion about the other impacts of people pleading guilty and how it comes back to haunt them. Basically, in the misdemeanor system, you never really pay your debt to society. You are constantly paying through um, missed income, missed homes, missed jobs, um, and other you uh, have a term a term of art. It's a um, wealth stripping or something like that, as you as you call it. Um, Sasha, I'm going to stop rambling and open it up to questions um, from the audience. As Bradley, you've got th- you've got the mic. Short questions, short answers. No speeches. Um, I don't want to be rude, but um, if you are launching into a speech, I'll, I'll interrupt you. And I, I, I don't mean that. to be rude, but I'll be rude. I second what Jonathan just said.
1: I thank you so much. You raise a very significant, important issue, and I and I laud you for that. But with the focus totally on punishment without crime, aren't you possibly enabling uh, occurrences where there is crime without punishment—the opposite of punishment without crime? You're not
0: addressing the other angle: crime without punishment. Thank you.
1: There's a lot more crime without punishment than there is punishment without crime in our country, uh, police and prosecutors can only do so much. And so I think one of the benefits of making sure that our misdemeanor system is actually going o- after crimes that we think warrant punishment, that, do- that that we are punishing people in proportionate and fair ways according to law, would permit our misdemeanor system to do more of what it needs to be doing. So. So we've talked a lot about order maintenance offenses, loitering, spitting, jaywalking, and everyone goes, how are these even crimes? But of course, there are serious misdemeanors, drunk driving, domestic violence, there are assault all, um, uh, in some jurisdictions, car th- uh, breaking into cars. We need a misdemeanor system that is capable of protecting people, of doing low-level uh, pr- promoting low-level public safety and one of the arguments in the book is that because we've let it become this uh, sort of sweeping net of uh, of uh, impoverishment and social control we haven't we're not forcing it to do the job that actually we all wanted to do we all want to live in neighborhoods where people are not committing misdemeanors on our front doorstep all the time. So so it's not, I, I don't think it's either or, I don't think it's instead of, I, I think that's how we get a functional misdemeanor system to by improving its
0: integrity. Thanks. Hi, I had a question about your declination, sorry, your declination's um, thoughts. You've seen some new prosecutors elected in places like St. Louis and Boston, but they've been met with implacable hostility from existing participants in St. Louis where the prosecutors joined the police union and in Boston where the ethics complaint was filed by the FOP against the incoming DA. And I wondered what your thoughts were about that.
1: I think change is tricky. Uh, These are not push button solutions. They are different ways of thinking about what we want our criminal system to do. I think we're in a very exciting moment, actually, in our national criminal justice conversation. Think how many decades it took to come to the consensus that we are apparently in that mass incarceration is a bad idea. (laughs) Twenty years ago, that was not received wisdom. And now everyone's like, oh, yeah, we know that. So in 20 years, my hope is that it will be a no-brainer for prosecutors to say of course we're gonna screen misdemeanors carefully because an arrest is something entirely different than a criminal charge. That it will come to be what we th- that we understand policing to have its role, prosecution to have its role, that we will appreciate the fact that, uh, as Jonathan was just saying, that a misdemeanor should be taken very seriously in this day and age. Uh, I don't expect it to happen overnight Um, and one of my hopes for this book is that it contributes to a conversation in which people get a new vocabulary and a new, a beginning of a new way to think about what's at stake.
0: Question over here. Hey Sasha, Um, various times you you use the metaphor of the machine, the the misdemeanor system uh, or use the net. Uh, idea uh, repeatedly. Uh, both of these metaphors suggest a kind of intentionality, uh, uh, a singular logic, um, which could be useful for reform efforts to mobilize people. But I wonder if you've thought about any of the drawbacks of of, of this way of talking about uh, what is very very sprawling kind of phenomenon with sort of many different uh, moving pieces.
1: Yeah. I th- the operative term in that sentence is metaphor. <laughs> um, I lost track of the number of metaphors that I used in the book: Leviathan, Behemoth, Net, sprawling, systemic machine. the The point is, it isn't one thing. Um, it certainly isn't a system. It's it's actually f- the mis- the misdemeanor phenomenon is the sum total of thousands of police departments, prosecutors' offices, public defender offices, legislative decisions in jurisdictions all over the country, each one of which handles it either somewhat differently or wildly differently. So even the, ter- the term system is a metaphor. I think it's a useful metaphor not, not to be pushed too far because it promotes systemic thinking. It promotes thinking about the sum total of people who pass through the system, how many there are, the aggregate effects on on individuals, on communities, on our criminal system. And so, so I, I accept the limitations of the metaphor because I think it gets us part of the way uh, to where we want to go in terms of the breadth of our thinking, but it... Um, but it is certainly subject to all the criticisms that you just that you just lobbied at it.
0: Hi, Sasha. Um, so question about the title and subtitle, both of which um, at least bring the theme of innocence into it. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your decision-making process or if you struggled with whether to make that so prominent. Because, of course, we know that there are exonerations in misdemeanor cases. but. There's no DNA in most of those cases. It's never going to be the same sort of high-profile certainty that you find in felony exonerations.
1: I'm obligated to mention that Professor Jenny Roberts here is one of the leading experts on misdemeanor processing and has been writing in this space for many years. Thank you so much for coming and and asking your question. You're a ringer. (laughs) Uh, She she already knows all my answers. and she knows that I did grapple with invoking the concept of innocence as a way of criticizing what it is the misdemeanor system does because of course millions of people are admittedly guilty of misdemeanors. They're being wrongfully punished because that conduct should never have been a misdemeanor in the first place because they are overpunished. Uh, disproportionately for whatever that minor crime was or because, as Jonathan pointed out a little while ago, they keep on being punished. We keep punishing them even though they've paid their fine or paid their debt to society. And so what I say in the book is that, there, that we should understand innocence in the misdemeanor system broadly. It, sh- it includes people who are incarcerated pre-trial waiting for their cases to be resolved if they can't make bail they're in jail that's not technically punishment the Supreme Court calls it regulatory detention not punishment but they're languishing in jail with all the burdens that that um, uh, that attend to that experience they're being punished even though we don't even know if they've committed a crime yet I I think we should rethink whether a lot of this conduct should be treated as criminal in many, so I I think we can understand people who are punished for things that shouldn't be crimes as innocent. Of course, there are also classic examples of wrongful conviction in the misdemeanor system. We round up people and pressure them to plead guilty, and they plead guilty to crimes they didn't commit. Classic innocence movement kinds of of, uh, wrongful conviction. But even people who have been convicted and punished who just keep suffering, they keep paying the burden of that criminal conviction that dogs them for a lifetime, I think we should understand them as being punished without crime. They're being punished even though they've already paid off their debt. So I think, um, and I, and to be clear, I've done work with the Innocence Movement. I uh, think that the, the Innocence Movement and the Innocence Projects have done an incredible service to the integrity of the of our criminal system. But we should understand the notion of innocence and our commitment to punishing people who deserve it more broadly, especially in the misdemeanor system where we so often violate that principle.
0: Can I read while you're getting to the next person, um, because on page 99, you have this um, make this great point, which I think dovetails nicely with this, what you, your answer to the question you write. On paper, the criminal system and the welfare state are two separate worlds. One goes after criminals, the other takes care of people who need it. But because crime and poverty in the United States are inextricable, the two institutions are intimately intertwined. Indeed, as we have seen, the misdemeanor system has become a kind of reverse welfare program it disproportionately goes after poor people and makes people poorer it affirmatively strips people of their resources imposing fines and fees and curtailing employment and housing options all the while criminalizing conduct associated with being low income um... uh... before you were talking about how certain cities were still using the misdemeanor system as a way to finance their own government such as the situation in ferguson missouri uh, given the history of the uh, given the history of the misdemeanor system uh, post the civ- post Civil War, uh, would it be fair to consider it as almost proof that epidemics in the U.S., such as mass incarceration, may be just another effort or form of slavery?
1: So some things change and some things don't. And I think that we should give historic change its due. broken windows policing today is not is not the same as what the southern states intentionally did after the Civil War but it's but it's recognizable, and those the the um, the racism the racial imbalance the a disparate impact on the poor the criminalization of poverty these are historic themes that run through the misdemeanor system i'm a hopeful person i would like to think that the arc of the universe bends towards justice <laughs> uh, and i think that there are some aspects of the misdemeanor system in which we can say It's better today than it was then, but we have not eradicated. We certainly haven't eradicated the racism. We certainly haven't eradicated the tendency towards criminalizing and controlling the poor. But our society has changed in so many ways. There are a lot of things that the state cannot get away with anymore that it could get away with 50 years ago, certainly 150 years ago. and it's one of the reasons that I'm hopeful because we do see change. We see pushback against stop and frisk. We see pushback against broken windows policing. We see pushback against the racial disparities. Um, one of my favorite misdemeanor stories is, uh, if you recall, the, the two men who are, uh, two African-American men who were arrested for trespassing in the Philadelphia Starbucks because one of them asked to use the bathroom and hadn't ordered, placed his order yet a routine occurrence, right, that, that, um, that many people understood was part of daily life. There was outrage. White people stepped forward. They said, this is appalling. This is racist. That would never happen to me. There was an outcry. I don't think that would have happened 10 years ago. Certainly wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. Uh, that's, a, that's cultural and political change, but it's also change in the criminal system it's people saying we should not use our criminal system this way so I think there's room for hope
0: hi there so on the question of money and this is a layperson's question uh, no legal training here but um, do you do you think that the the kind of rollback of what the misdemeanor system catches will be enough to allow these under-resourced, uh, the under-resourced misdemeanor system to be able to, to handle its cases, or is there also going to need to be a discussion of, about how can we provide um, more funding to the system at the same time as we're trying to, you know, reduce the taxation that is funding, at least in certain areas, um, part of what's going on?
1: Uh, so the misdemeanor system is enmeshed as is every major social institution uh, uh, in our system of taxation and local governance and democracy. And so one of the the reasons that misdemeanor courts turn towards fines and fees and this kind of regressive taxation is because local budgets uh, and states' budgets were strapped for money. And so everyone was looking for ways to uh, for new sources of revenue and so in I think one of the ways we can understand what happened is that there was a vulnerable unprotected population at the mercy of these local institutions and no one was watching and it was an easy way for those institutions to raise funds so you're absolutely right um, and, ma- and many judicial institutions have stepped forward and made this point so the um, uh, the uh conference on um, on state judges and uh the the conference on municipal uh Judges have stepped forward and said we shouldn't turn our courts into uh, into revenue generators we 're supposed to be judicial entities applying the law. The only way we can do that is if we 're funded from general revenue you shouldn't force us to raise our own money uh any and because it's part of our democratic structure. So there is, I think, the beginning, at least, of a robust conversation on precisely that point. If we don't fund our courts, then we are forcing our courts into this terrible situation. And, um, but, but we can no longer be surprised at what happens when we do that.
0: So there's time for one more audience question. And then um, uh, Jonathan and, and Sasha will uh, wrap up the conversation. Uh, hi
1: thanks Uh, it's evident that most of the pressure from us citizens would need to go to our state legislatures to get anything changed but I'm wondering as a non-attorney how much devolves all the way to the local level the counties the cities uh, you just mentioned that they've been using it to raise money where do we put our efforts (laughs) anywhere Because our criminal system is a profoundly local system. I think it's it's misleading to be in Washington DC because the federal judiciary occupies such an enormous place in our understanding and our imagination. The federal system files fewer than 5% of all criminal cases in this country. It's democratically important. It's symbolically important. But most of this stuff is happening at the state and county and local level. And. To, to go back to my theme of hope <laughs> um, uh, from the previous question, anyone can go to their municipality. There are many cities around the country where the municipal court is producing thousands, hundreds of thousands of these convictions. Well, that's run by the city council. That's run by the municipal judges. Um, it's sitting right there for local engagement and local change. So I think actually there are enormous Opportunities for local engagement at many, many levels of governance. We don't need to wait for Congress. Uh, we don't need to wait for the Supreme Court. Um, change can happen at the uh, immediately, uh, as soon as a city or a county or, or a state citizenry decide that they that that's what they want to happen. I think
0: um, you. In the chapter on race, at the very end, you make a, you, you make a very uh, concerted effort to make people understand that this is something, and i 'm going to read this, and I want you to you 'll understand where i 'm going after I read this. Um, y- you write while poor people of color often fare the worst in the misdemeanor system, it is wealthy offenders, not white offenders, who typically typically fare the best. African American men may be the prime victims of overcriminalization, but it was Gail Atwater, a white mother of two, who the Supreme Court decided should go to jail for a seatbelt violation. Um to end this, I'm going to end it where actually the book starts, and that's the story of Gail Atwater. How did she go from a seat vi- seatbelt violation to being a case at the Supreme Court?
1: Uh, so, Atwater versus Lago Vista is a very famous Supreme Court case, and it's about a, a, a mom in Texas who was driving around the local park at about 15 miles an hour with her kids who were not wearing seatbelts looking out of the window uh, because her son Mac had lost his toy in the park. And so she had told the kids they could take off their seatbelt to look for the toy. Police officer pulled her over, hollered at her, said, You're going to jail. The kids are crying. He, he won't let her drop the kids off to a neighbor's no you're all going to jail she goes to jail she's booked goes to the cell um, uh, has her possessions taken fingerprinted Is guilty the seatbelt violation the maximum penalty for that misdemeanor criminal misdemeanor in Texas is $50 she couldn't go to jail for it it's a non jailable misdemeanor she pays the fine and she sues She said, this is a violation of the Fourth Amendment, my right against unreasonable search and seizure. You locked me up in jail and gave me an arrest record for an offense for which I couldn't even go to jail. And the Supreme Court ruled against her. The Supreme Court said, for any offense, no matter how minor, no matter what the punishment, police officers can effectuate what we call a full-fledged custodial arrest put you in jail with anybody else who happens to be in that jail at the moment. Um, You will get an arrest record. You can be booked. In some jails, you can be strip searched for the arrest for any minor offense. And that is really the beginning of the net, of of the spread of the misdemeanor system. Because what it says is that with all the things that we have turned into crimes in this country, as low level as they are, the weight of the state can come crashing down on anybody.
0: Um, well, I'll I leave it on that, on that very know. dramatic note. The name of the book is Punishment Without Crime, How Our Massive Misdemeanor System Traps the Innocent and Makes America More Unequal. Alexandra Sasha Nanopoff. Thank you very much. You. Congratulations. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Can
1: He Do That? You should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Post Reports, Every afternoon, host Martine Powers brings you the unparalleled reporting and analysis you expect from The Post newsroom in our newest daily podcast. Or try Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past rediscovered. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcast. The Washington Washington Washington, Washington, Washington
0: Post. Post.